Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. So one of the most helpful lessons I have I've learned, it's come back to me multiple times throughout the years, uh, about management and leadership are the four stages of work. Have you ever heard of these four stages of work? By the way, Betty Lynn, this sermon's for you. <laughs> the four stages of work. Stage one is called, they call it the um, unconscious incompetence. You don't know that you don't know. We all know what this means or what this is like. It means coming into a new environment and trying desperately so hard to not embarrass yourself when you get there and show your ignorance and your lack of appropriate skills for whatever this thing is. It means looking back and cringing at some of the things you said and did that during that period of time. Yeah. The second stage, they say, is called um, the conscious incompetence. It's the moment in that job when you immediately realize that you don't know what's going on here. <laughs> this is what people call the, like, the fast learning curve, right? Um, you, you realize there's all history here and vocabulary that you don't get and a set of relationships and approach to the job that you have got to master now and you have a sense of the scope of, of what this all entails. The third stage is the conscious competence. You know what you know. This is when you are thriving at your work and you're at the, the, the top of every aspect of it and the task of the manager is to get you to the point, this point, as quickly as possible. They want to get every employee to this point as quickly as possible, that conscious competence. But there is also a fourth stage. And they call that the unconscious competence, where you have been competent, kind of exhausted, and you start to realize you're starting to forget some of the things that you know. We all reach this stage at some point in time. Um, when we when we do, it feels um, like something we don't want to admit often. Those, those who like to say, like, son, I, I've gotten, <laughs> I've forgotten more than you'll ever know. You know. If you've ever heard your grandfather say that, aren't doing themselves any favors by staying in the job either because you've forgotten it and it's useless um, 
to keep kind of pressing in and getting tired and feeling burned out. The people, this happens often, this can happen late in life um, and uh, in retirement, but it also can happen when you just have outgrown a job, when you are no longer needed there. Um, you, you start forgetting the things you knew. The trouble is, it's hard to make that next step, right? It's hard to make that next step. It's hard, it's hard to retire. Even if the truth is that we've been at stage four for like years in a job. And I know um, I have, I was in teaching. I was in stage four in teaching. I had, I had become competent and then I started to forget my own competence. Um, I had become, I had been in stage four for years. Probably half of my teaching career, which tells me I probably shouldn't be a teacher um, forever, and that's why I'm not. But the fantasy may may blend a, a number of layers of self-deception around this because you think that you are competent and you should stay. We may say to ourselves, um, I don't think they could cope without me here. Or we, we could pretend, I want to get this organization to such a level that my successor can't ruin it. Right? Or, or we think I, I've got a, I've got a lot. I've, I've given such a lot to this space. The least I can, I can ask in return is to, to get to serve those kind of last years um, here with the same kind of level of expectation on me. Or we might have been working in a job environment where the morale is so bad at this point, where we've been humiliated by having been shown perhaps repeatedly by people how dispensable we are in this space. And so to be determined and empowered to hang on, to show them what's up, right? I'm gonna hold on so that they don't beat me down. But in all of these stories, really we may be hiding the truth, which may be more like this. Um, if I don't come to work, I don't know who I am. All I have left is like whatever unresolved issues in the rest of my life or whatever facade I've created. So retirement being one of these various stages in life is actually a relatively new phenomenon in human existence. It, it arises out of the ability of like longer lifespans, right? Which means most of us live longer than our span of working. So we retire now. This is not something of previous generations. It also arises out of increasing financial means, which means more than a tiny minority now can afford to spend their later days without like a full weekly salary. This is not something that previous generations had. And I want to suggest today that this story that we read the story of Jesus' ascension into heaven has something to say to us about these kind of moments in life, about retirement, wherever, whether it is retirement after many, like after having worked since you were 10 years old, or like retirement from this particular chapter of your life, that this story has something to say about that. Um, it has so much more to say than that though too. The doctrine of the ascension is pieced together from different New Testament accounts, but Mark and John tell us absolutely nothing about it. Mark and John don't mention the ascension whatsoever. Matthew records a final conversation with his disciples on the mountaintop in Galilee. 
but he doesn't tell what happens next in that. So again, no ascension. Luke seems to record all his Easter stories, including the one we read today of Jesus being carried up into heaven. He records it all as happening in one day. Easter to ascension, all one day. But it's only in the book of Acts that we get this time frame that shapes the, the church here, placing ascension 40 days after Easter and Pentecost 10 days after that. And the ascension is largely neglected in the church's imagination. Those who get stuck on the physics of it find it hard to see past like all these ancient paintings where Jesus' feet are glimpsed disappearing out the top of the picture as he appears and then kind of rides out on a cloud. And those for whom faith is largely a matter of like personal piety, personal holiness, seem to concentrate more on how the ascension is really just letting Jesus reign as king of our hearts. But both of these perspectives kind of miss the point. They kind of miss the whole theological, all the theological issues within the ascension. And so I'm going to talk about four of them today. First, four, four theological issues um, for, that we can wrestle with. Um, and the first one is that the ascension, the ascension tells us that Jesus stopped because he was finished. That's why he stopped. Jesus quit. Jesus was ascended, whatever you want to call it. Jesus moved on because he had finished. He really had done everything he needed to do. He really had given us everything we needed to, to receive. This claim is at the heart of Christian theology, and the peg on which it, it hangs is the ascension, this moment. But it's always unfashionable because Christians tend to be less thrilled with what God has done than what... They are bewildered God has not done. God has given us life, given us creation, given us covenant friendship, restored that friendship over and over again, given us Jesus, given us forgiveness, given us eternal life. But what about the events of this week, God? What about the deeply troubled 18-year-old with a gun? What about, what about when, when guns beat classrooms, God? What about when children die, God? What about when it's too much and no steps ever seem to be taken to fix it? It's as if we're so mesmerized by maybe let's call it the market economy, that we see our relationship with God as a market transaction, and we feel the contents of salvation aren't what it, it said on the outside of the tin. And so we want our money back from God. All we can think of is, is what God hasn't given us, what questions are left unanswered, what work is left to, to be done. And into this... <laughs> litany of what's wrong with God comes the ascension. Jesus went back where he came from because it was finished. He's finished. He didn't, he didn't hang around to work on a few odd jobs around the edges of, of salvation and the edges of our world. There was, there was no more to do for Jesus. 
I know a lot of us rebel against this. Surely there's plenty left unredeemed in this world. How can Jesus have finished? Will he take in the poison out of sin? That anyone can be forgiven and redeemed? And he, he's shown us the heart of God, that God's heart breaks when the worst happens. And he, he broken through that, that previously impenetrable wall of death. In other words, he'd he, he done what only God could do, what matters most, and he'd left the rest up to us to do. Salvation remains today what it was on Ascension Day. Not a life without disappointment or, or without discomfort or without disillusionment or unimaginable evil or, or, or heartache, but a life with a faith to look back on and a hope to look forward to and a love to live. And so we hold up Jesus as this like comprehensive model for, for retirement. I have finished all I have done. I'm not saying we should all go at 33, having achieved salvation for the world, but we ought to notice the logic of what it means to say Jesus stopped when he was finished. It means none of us is indispensable. Jesus is indispensable. He did what no one else could do or can do. And you and I are, we're not indispensable. If we live our lives thinking we're the only one who can save the world, we're just we're just insulting our colleagues and wearing out our family members all the time and heading for burnout ourselves. And we're denying that Jesus has already saved the world. And of course there are crisis moments when it may be that we can bring something important or even unique to a situation, but to create a world in which Every moment is one of those crisis moments is to make up a story in which we take the place of God. So remember I said there are four lessons. They get way shorter now. That was the big one. First, Jesus stopped because he was finished. Second, wherever Jesus went on ascension, whether he really went up on a cloud or just went like up in this very real sense and throned on our hearts. Either way, he went somewhere. Where did the bodily Jesus go? The point about like this part of the ascension is not so much that Jesus went up as, as that he went somewhere. And that somewhere is at least as real as here. I say at least is real because it may be even more real. This, this life is passing. Everything in this existence is relative. This world will one day pass away, but where Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, enthroned on our hearts, that's, that is for keeps. That is forever. What, what we call heaven is, 
is the company of God, the presence of God, where all are gathered as God's companions. Imagine that for a moment. Just imagine that. There, there is another world more real than this one. So what that means for retirement, or what that means for all of us, is that we don't have to get it all right this time around. I've heard people say, like, life isn't a rehearsal. Well, actually, it is. Believe it or not, if it is, you don't, you don't have to get it all done. You don't have to leave it all tidy. You don't have to ensure it forever remains the way it is now. Jesus gone, has gone to the place where all is as it should be. And the promise of this coming kingdom is that God's heaven will someday come as come to earth as it is in heaven and so that all is finally as it should be, not because we offered our thoughts and prayers, but also not because we beat down the doors of Congress and held gun lobbyists and their, their politicians accountable. The promise of the com coming kingdom is that God's heaven will someday come to God's earth so that all is finally as it should be, not because you and I got it right, but because God said it is finished. First, Jesus left because it was finished. Second, Jesus went somewhere more real than here. The third thing we must notice about the ascension today is that though Jesus supernaturally appears and rides out on a cloud, he was still very human. Fully human and fully divine, but still fully human, which means he can only be in one place at one time. The ascension means that Jesus is no longer on earth. He's in heaven. Being divine didn't make Jesus any less human. It made him more human. It made him more alive, more aware of the wonder of creation, more bursting with joy and compassion and laughter and reflection and also suffering. All of those uniquely human attributes. But Jesus being human also means that he entered fully into our very mundane lives too, which brings me back to retirement. Because it's retirement that in many ways is coming to terms with the more mundane aspects of life. You haven't, you haven't got a mask to put on each day to protect yourself anymore from your that fragile kind of reflection in the mirror. You are fully alive as you ever were, as a fully human, as, as, as a young graduate starting out her new career. And that, and that brings us to number four. We find in the words of two men in this story, two men in white robes who spoke to the disciples after a cloud has taken Jesus out of their sights and they can't see him at all anymore. And they wonder, they wonder afraid and devastated and weary and angry, much like the array of emotions that we have felt this week. They wonder if Jesus has left them all alone, if God is nowhere to be found. But these two men in white robes, they ask, why do you stand looking towards heaven? In other words, Jesus may have finished, but this could mean a whole new beginning for you. Jesus may be finished, but this could mean a whole new beginning for you. If retirement is just about looking back, if it's just about leaving someplace, 
just about wistfully pondering the past in nostalgia or regret, then it's bound to be distressing. Yes, the world doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. Yes, we are indispensable. Or yes, Jesus is indispensable. We are not. But if the events of this week are just another moment of life's disappointment and heartache, another prayer to the God who we don't quite get in a world that we don't understand how God could let happen, then it's bound to be debilitating. But it must also be about the future. We may retire from work, but we don't retire from being a disciple. There is no professional vocation that exhausts what it means for us to be a disciple. Retirement can be a time when, when we make new transforming discoveries in friendship and in service and in faith, as Betty Lynn I know will. And at this moment, this week, this tragedy can be a time when we choose to be the church that God has called us to be, clinging to the future, not believing that the world depends on, on us to save it, but still being the church that needs prayer with action and resolve. The words, like, why do you stand looking up to heaven are a challenge to us. To remember that God still has good things in store and that God can use us to do those good things and that the best is yet to come and that the future is always bigger than the past. Jesus' ascension, it shows us that he has finished. It shows us that there is another place more real than this one. It shows us that Jesus is fully human and understands right now what this is like and it shows us that there is but there's a time for lamenting and there's a time to look forward and there's a time to get busy and there's a time to be used by God. And if we still face the reality of retirement sooner or later, or if we still face the reality of this week with bewilderment, the transforming words here for us and for the first disciples is, you are still a disciple, get to work. So I want to invite you, not believing that we, that it depends on us, but also not just praying empty prayers. I, I want to invite us as a church to do something today um, as a part of our receiving communion. Um, and I think it's something that the church rarely does, uh, but maybe it's time that we do. So next Sunday is Pentecost, and it's a day where we often um, we often wear red. Another good color for Pentecost would be orange. And next Sunday also happens to be National Lockout Day for against gun violence. And so I wonder what it would look like for us as a community to wear orange. A. I also think that um, often. The work that is done to um, make change legislatively related to, we all know something's got to happen, something's got to give. Um, but the work is often done by individual people, and the church largely stays away from it. Um, we don't, what if, what if a church were to um, compile 
a set of letters to our senator, compile a set of them from every, every person in the church to say, what gives? Something has got to give. Um, what if that could also be an act of worship from us as a church? What if we could next week put letter after letter into an envelope as we gather for Pentecost in solidarity in our orange instead of in our red? Um, and so I want to invite you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to you individually and sit, there's a way that you can submit letters online and that's all very individual. I think you can still do that, but what would it look like if I could also compile them in like a Google Doc? a good Google folder um, of letters from everyone in our church speaking about why you as a person of faith think that something has to change. Um, and so I have up here today, if you want to be one of those people, um, if it seems like something that you might do, here's the thing, we all have talked many times about writing letters. I think we all know that there's always an option to write letters to our senators. And we're not quite sure we believe anything can be done. Um, let's do it as an act of faith and as worship, believing that like God changes things when the disciples of Jesus are used for His purposes. So, um, I, if you, if you want to hold yourself accountable to writing a letter this week and you want God to hold you accountable to that actual action practice, not just saying, I know we post our pictures, we post our, we post our pictures um, of, you know, thoughts and prayers, let's slash it out and put actions instead. Um, but I would venture a guess that very few of us actually ever do any action ourselves too. So what if we combined a moment of prayer today, which we believe in as Christians, with a moment of action. Um, so I have this right here. Um, it says, our nation is in the midst of a gun violence crisis. Every day, more than 110 Americans die from gun violence. We don't have to live like this, and we don't have to die like this. And so what if holding elected officials accountable could be an act of worship when done in the context of corporate worship? And so will you pray and will you act? By this week, writing a letter to Virginia Senators Mark Warner and Tim Kaine by June 5th. Put them together in a huge comp compilation ourselves as a church. Um, just to ask for reasonable background checks and some red flag laws. I mean, we're, there is so much to go that even the basic ask is one step we all can unite around, I think. Um, whatever it is. So uh, I, I'm going to leave this up on the altar with a pen. And as you receive communion today, if you just want to be held accountable to actually acting and not just talking about all oh, those people that pray, but pray and act. Um, write your name down. Just like sign it and, and I will hold you accountable this week. I'll send you a check every day. Have you written that letter yet? Have you written that letter yet? Um, uh, I think that is, uh, it's at least what the, it's the very least we can do as the church, right? It's the very least we can do. Uh, because uh, it's, there's actually a, a, a thing in the Hebrew tradition where uh, if you um, consecrate bread, but you don't ever eat it, uh, it's actually a sin. So if we consecrate this and we don't actually do the act of doing it, it's a sin. <laughs> it is, it's a sin. I'm not saying prayer isn't, isn't good, but it is a sin. It's a sin to consecrate something and then do nothing for it. Um, so I invite you to do something today.
There is peace at the table of the Lord.